the human being, random accident or wonderfully made? The human body is made up of seven octillion atoms. That's a real number. That's a seven followed by 27 zeros. Seven octillion atoms. The human brain cell can hold five times as much information as the Encyclopedia Britannica. The human body has 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Your teeth start growing six months before you're born. Humans shed and regrow outer skin cells every 27 days. There are 2.5 trillion red blood cells in your body at any moment. And to maintain that number, about 2.5 million new ones need to be produced every second by your bone marrow. That's like replacing the population of the city, uh, city of Toronto every second. Taking into consideration all the tissues and cells in your body, there are 25 million new cells being produced every second. That's a little less than the population of Canada being produced every second. Our eyes can distinguish up to one million color surfaces and take in more information than the largest telescope known to man. The stomach's digestive acids are strong enough to dissolve zinc, so the stomach lining is constantly regenerating itself and is completely replaced every three days. And every time you touch something, you send a message to your brain at 124 miles an hour. Now you tell me, random accident or wonderfully made? I'm going to stick with wonderfully made. In fact, when you consider the complexity of just the human body with all of its parts that grow and work together to heal itself and to protect itself and to perpetuate itself in ways that are infinitely more complex and ordered and structured than any man-made machinery could ever hope to be. I mean, honestly, I, I, I struggle with the fact that that we question the existence of a designer and creator of the human body while comfortably accepting the existence of designers and creators for every other far less complex machine on earth. I just can't see any other reasonable explanation for humanity's existence apart from an intelligent designer and creator, which is precisely why the Apostle Paul, a brilliant mind by anyone's standards, by the way, said that all of creation, not just the human body, but all of creation testifies to the existence of a creator. In fact, nature screams the truth about God. Paul wrote, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning those who reject the truth about a creator, they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. In other words, there's no excuse for our unbelief because simply by looking around you, you can clearly see the fingerprint of a creator in what has been made. Just the same way, when you, when you see a copying machine, for instance, a printer, you can see the fingerprint of a creator all over that machine because it's obvious it's obvious to anyone looking at it, the way that machine works, the way that everything is ordered and structured to work together to make copies and print. It is obvious that machine did not come to exist on its own. No, some person very clearly designed and built that machine. In fact, we don't even question it. 
And yet all that machine does is copy and print. It cannot think for itself or act on its own behalf. It cannot feel or hope or dream or love. It cannot do anything other than copy and print. While the person who designed and built that copier can do all of those things and far more because that person is an infinitely more complex machine than the copier that he built. Not to mention the earth and every bit of it in nature being vastly more complex in its structure and order and function than a copying machine. Yet we laugh at the idea of someone designing and creating all of this and all of us while readily accepting the idea that somehow we randomly evolved into what we are today. So Paul says, look, you may choose not to believe it, right? You may refuse to recognize the obvious work of an intelligent being in creation, but at the end of the day, you have no excuse because his fingerprint is all over this earth. And by the way, it is all over you, whether you choose to accept that or not. Because God gives us the dignity a free will. When Jesus was calling his first disciples, he didn't say to them, hey, pray this prayer so that you can have a personal relationship with me. No, but one after another after another, he approached them while they were working, while they were with their families, while they were with their friends, and he said to them, hey, come follow me. And they dropped what they were doing. They left their former lives in the dust. And they obediently followed Jesus. You understand, that is how they came to have a personal relationship with him, by accepting his invitation to follow him. Look, he extended that very same invitation to many others who chose not to follow him. I mean, if we didn't have a choice, then why bother? At one point, a wealthy young man asked Jesus what he had to do to have eternal life. Jesus didn't say, well, just repeat this prayer after me, and then you'll have eternal life, or you'll have a personal relationship with me. No, he said to the young man, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then what? Come, follow me. The exact same invitation that he extended to the other disciples, come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, Matthew 19. 21 and 22, same call, same invitation, same opportunity as the other disciples, but a very different response. Why? Because as the young man learned that day, there are consequences to following Jesus. You actually have to change the way that you live your life. You have to leave things behind. You have to deny yourself. You have to lay your own life down for other people. You have to do what he wants instead of what you want when those two things are not the same. There are very real consequences to following Jesus. In fact, it changes your life drastically. And listen, not everyone is willing. In fact, most people are not willing to pay that price. But make no mistake, the invitation to follow him is the same today as it was then. We can choose to follow the creator, the one we owe our very existence to, accepting that we have been wonderfully made for a great purpose, which we talked about last time, or we can choose to follow ourselves and see where that gets us, which is exactly how we've ended up where we are as a society today. So again, the last time we talked about the fact that 
Every single one of us was created by God, wonderfully made for a God-given purpose. And today we're going to take that discussion a step further and talk about what that purpose actually is as the story of creation continues to unfold. Because uh, I can just tell you unequivocally that your God-given purpose doesn't begin and end with you saying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. I mean, that's great. That's one way certainly to accept the invitation to follow him, but, but then you have to get up. You have to leave your former life behind. You have to actually follow him. We have a picture of what that looks like, how God intended that to be right from the start as we continue working our way through this creation story of Genesis. So let's turn there together. If you have your Bible, we'll put it up on the screen as well. I'm going to see if we can find out what exactly he went to all this trouble for, right? For, for what purpose are we so wonderfully made? And this topic is going to cover two sermons, by the way. So we'll, we'll cover the first two points today and then uh, the next three or so points next Sunday. So let's turn there. Uh, we're going to pick the story up where we left off last time. Read Genesis 1, beginning with verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So right from the beginning, verse 26, there's a shift from the way that God has been creating and forming the earth and its inhabitants up to this point for the first time since the story began in this epic drama of the creation of all things, for the first time we see God address what appears to be himself. In every other section up until now, each new creation sequence begins with, and God said, let there be, and then you can fill in the blank according to whatever he was creating each day. But on the sixth day, after he forms the land animals, he very purposefully and very significantly changes his approach. On this day, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There are actually scholars who have suggested that God was addressing the angels here or perhaps uh, his heavenly court. The problem with that theory is the fact that there's absolutely no indication in Scripture that we were made in the image of angels or that angels had any part, in fact, in the creation process whatsoever. On the contrary, Scripture is very clear that we were made in the image of God alone, not in the image of angels, uh, for that matter, not in the image of apes, not in the image of other primates or other mammals. No, we were made in the image of the creator himself. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which was spoken directly to the other members of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, John 1 tells us that Jesus was not only present, but very much involved in the creation story. In fact, it says all things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. And of course, we also see the Holy Spirit involved in the creation story right in verse 2 of Genesis 1. So we know that the Trinitarian Godhead was creating all of this together. So it makes complete sense that when God creates man in his image, it is the complete image of God, the Trinitarian Godhead. By the way, the idea 
that the Godhead is in conversation with itself is seen all throughout Scripture. That's not just here in Genesis 1. We see evidence of it in Psalm 110.1 and uh, Isaiah 48.16, John 5.30, John 8.28, just to name a few. So from the very beginning and then all throughout history, the Godhead has been in conversation with itself as you would expect. And as we listen into their conversation here in Genesis 1.26 and 27, we find out one of the reasons why we were so wonderfully made. It's the fact that we were made to reflect God's image, which is unique, you know, to mankind. I hope you know that. There's, there's no other aspect of his entire creation that was created in his image. No rock formation, not the planets, not the seas, not the plants or the animals. Only mankind is described as being made in the image of God and after the likeness of the Godhead which means we are a completely unique element of God's creation, wonderfully made in His image, which speaks directly to both the physical and the spiritual aspects of humanity. First of all, uh, if we're all descended from other mammals, then at some point, those other species evolved into the image of God. And so at, at what point was that? At what point in the evolutionary process do the animals become a reflection of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Because listen, Jesus didn't die for your dog. He died for you. He, he didn't come back to the earth as a, as a great ape. He came back as a man. Only mankind has the potential to be joint heirs with Christ. Only mankind is referred to as children of God. Only mankind can pray to the Father, and only mankind can be filled with His Holy Spirit. And all of that is possible because only mankind was created in His image. Only we can reflect His image physically, right? The Apostle John's description of the glorified Christ in the Revelation is the image of a man on a horse, not an ape or a bird or a fish on a horse. Only mankind can reflect his image physically and only mankind can reflect his image spiritually. Genesis 7.15 describes the process of the animals entering Noah's ark before the flood. It says they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. The breath of life, that phrase in that verse is the ancient Hebrew word ruach, which is translated literally as breath of life or spirit. Later in Genesis 7, 20 through 23, we read about the great flood and what happens to the animals that were not in the ark. It says the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And again, the word ruach, breath of life, is used in verse 22, the assertion being that every living animal has a spirit. There are other passages of Scripture, by the way, that bear this out. Ecclesiastes 3 is a great example. We don't have time to go through all of that today. But listen, if, if that's true, if animals have a spirit, well, then how is mankind any different spiritually than all of the other animals, right? How does mankind reflect the Godhead any differently than the rest of the animals? Well, Genesis 2-7 describes the creation of mankind, and it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
right? That Hebrew phrase, breath of life, in that verse is not the word ruach. Again, it's literally, ruach is translated as breath of life. In Genesis 2-7, the word for breath of life is neshama, which means breath of God. And interestingly, the Hasidic Jews teach that this neshama is actually a part of God himself, an eternal spirit. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, if, if we evolved from other mammals, it would make sense that we share the same breath of life as the animals. But according to scripture, we don't. Which means if evolution is true, then at some point in our evolution, God would have to breathe the second breath of life into us, the neshama. And yet that's not what the Bible describes as happening. No, he breathed one kind of spirit into the animals and a completely different kind of spirit into mankind. Can you see how according to the word of God, only mankind was created to reflect the image of God, physically and spiritually, which incidentally, is why much of this world is in the shape that it is in. Because every day men and women choose by their own free will to try and reflect something other than the Creator. When we do that, we're taking on a role that we were never created for. We're trying to be something we were never created to be. So you end up with governments and societies and individuals run amok because we're working against the Creator and against His created order and structure and purpose for this world. Think about it. When you think about the dysfunction in our society, in our culture, in the worldwide, why don't we see the same dysfunction in the animal kingdom? It's because animals, by and large, no matter what is happening in our society around them, animals continue to be exactly what they were created to be. You understand, if we would just do the same, this world would be a very different place. Okay, when Jesus called men and women to follow him, what he was doing was showing them how to reflect the Creator. Right, through him, how, how to be the men and women that he created us to be by reflecting him. You understand, all of our problems, they stem from us trying to reflect something other than the creator, which is exactly what happens when we follow something other than Jesus. In fact, if you keep reading the passage in Romans that we read earlier, where the Apostle Paul says that the evidence of the Creator is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you keep reading there, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, instead of reflecting the image of the Creator, they chose to reflect the image of created things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Romans 1, 21 through 25. This is precisely why in many parts of our country today you can be arrested for cutting down a living tree but it is perfectly legal to kill a living child in the womb. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
Isaiah 43, 7 says that we were created for his glory. That is our primary purpose in this life, to glorify God. And the primary way we do that is by reflecting his image to the rest of the world. But you cannot reflect his image while you're worshiping other things. And now we get to the heart of the matter. Because you cannot follow Jesus and follow other things at the same time. Now look, you can have many other things in your life while following Jesus. Certainly, family, friends, hobbies, career, all of those things uh, are or certainly can be good for us. But you understand they must all be in tow as we follow Jesus first. Those things must come along with us as we stay focused on following him. The problem with much of the church today is the fact that we have it turned around in the exact opposite way. We follow many other things in this world with Jesus in tow. We focus on following other things while trying to drag him along for the ride. But the truth is, we're only fooling ourselves. And then we wonder why our lives are such a mess. So you can only reflect what you're focused on. If you're focused on money and material things, well, your life will reflect that focus. If you're focused on impressing other people, your life will reflect that focus. If it's politics or social issues, your life will reflect that focus. Listen, if you're focused on yourself, your life will reflect that focus in everything that you say and do. At the end of the day, whatever it is your life is focused on, that is what your life will reflect. Whatever it is your life is focused on, that's what your life will reflect. And yet there's only one thing that we were actually created to reflect, and that is the image of God himself. That's the purpose you were wonderfully made for. And so look, if your life is not where it needs to be today, if, if you're not fulfilling your God-given purpose in this life, you simply need to shift your focus and follow Jesus where he wants you to go instead of trying to lead him where it is you want to go. Because look, you will never, ever, 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 ever be able to fulfill his great purpose for your life when your life is focused on something other than him. And again, it's, it's not that you can't or shouldn't have other things in your life. You certainly should. It's how you view and interact with those other things in your life that makes the difference, which leads us to the next part of the story. So let's continue verse 28 to the end of the chapter. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So for the first five days of creation, God makes the earth and the seas and the plants and the animals. And, and then on the sixth day, he makes human beings and he says to them, you are now in charge of everything I made in the first five days. He hands them the keys to this earthly kingdom and he says, now take care of it. In fact, he says, fill it, subdue it. 
have dominion over it. In other words, we were made to rule over the earth. This is another aspect of the God-given purpose that we were wonderfully made for, to rule over this earth. Psalm 8, 4 through 8 says, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That means we are God's kingly representatives on this earth made to reflect his image. Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, we were made to rule over this earth. And I understand that that kind of language makes us uncomfortable today, right? We don't talk a lot today about having dominion over things anymore or putting things under our feet or subduing things, right? In our culture today, the idea of ruling over the earth sounds a little heavy-handed, maybe even a bit arrogant. Listen, Jesus isn't just your friend. He's your king. He rules over us, which is also the most loving, compassionate, and just treatment that we could ever hope to receive from him. Why? Because he's a loving, compassionate, and just ruler. And so if we're going to reflect his image on this earth, then we have to lovingly, compassionately, and justly rule over this earth. But listen to me. You cannot rule over something you worship. And therein lies the problem. Because once again, we've gotten ourselves turned around. We're supposed to rule over that which is created while worshiping the creator. But instead, we worship what has been created while trying to rule over the creator. Often, we're more in love with this world than we are with Jesus. So we follow the ways of this world and we try to bring him along with us. And in the process, we not only fail to reflect his image in this world, but we let this world rule over us. In Hebrews 2.8, after quoting the passage we just read from Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But listen to the last part of the verse. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You see, presently, the earth is not fully submitted to the rule of mankind because mankind is not fully submitted to the rule of Jesus Christ. As long as our relationship with God as the human race is out of harmony with his purposes for us, we will never be able to fully exercise our proper place of authority in relationship to the rest of his creation. That's not just a physical authority by the way that we're given it is a spiritual authority as well it is we have power and dominion over sin the apostle paul said let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not uh, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to god as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you romans 6 12 through 14. we have authority over sin we have authority over the dark 
demonic powers of the enemy. In Luke's gospel, he reports that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Luke 10, 17 through 19. We have authority over the powers of the enemy. We have authority over how our children are raised, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. We have authority over our finances, Proverbs 3, 9. We have authority to make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We have authority to pray for the sick, James 5. Authority to see others set free, Galatians 5, 13 and John 8, 36. Authority to bless one another, 1 Peter 3, 9. Authority to hold one another to account, Matthew 18. Authority to teach and preach the truth, Titus 1.9. Authority to be generous in every way, 2 Corinthians 9, 8-11. I can go on and on. You see, we have all of this authority that has been given to us. So why do we struggle so much in these very same areas of our lives? It's because you cannot rule over something that you worship. If you worship your kids, you cannot raise them with authority. And a child raised without authority will become an adult who refuses to recognize all authority of any kind. You cannot rule over your health when excess is your God. You cannot rule over your schedule when busyness is your God. You cannot rule over something that you worship. You cannot rule over your finances when money is your God. You you cannot rule over your pride when your ego is your God. You cannot rule over your emotions when fear is your God. You cannot rule over what has been created when the created world is your God. You cannot rule over something that you worship. Yet when you get it right, when you keep your focus on following Jesus Christ and worshiping Him, which, by the way, puts every other thing in its proper place in our lives, well, what happens? Think about it. When you stop worshiping yourself and instead, for instance, sacrifice some of your food and some of your time so that you can focus on Jesus, when you fast and pray, what happens? The first thing that happens is you gain perspective because you're ruling over your appetite and your attention, and all of a sudden, the appetites of this world and its demand for your attention gets put into its proper place under the rule of your authority. Secondly, you create space in your life for God to work. I used to have beagles. God help me. I loved those dogs, but they weren't very sensible. Because every time they would smell something exciting, like a rabbit or a deer or a squirrel or a chipmunk or a fly, (laughs) pretty much any other wild animal in existence, they would run off chasing that scent. And sometimes they'd be gone for a couple of days. And invariably, I would eventually find them on the front porch, usually wet, cold, shivering, and hungry. And they would look at me like, I can't believe you let it get this bad. Like, how could you do this to us? And so I would try to explain to them, although they never seemed to get it. I'm like, look, if you would just follow me, 
Right? Instead of chasing after every wild thing in the woods that seems to be more exciting, if you would just keep your focus on me instead, you'd be well taken care of, provided for, played with, warm, dry, fed. Why? Because everything that you need is right here with me. But as soon as they caught that next scent, they were gone. The truth is, we're kind of like that with God. We focus on just about everything but him, and then we wonder why he allows our lives to get as bad as they do sometimes. Are you kidding me? It's just like those beagles. You know how many times people come to me and ask me, Pastor, how can a good God let bad things happen in this world? Are you kidding me? We chase after every other thing in this world but God, and then we question him when we reap the consequences of our sin. And we wonder why. How can you let it get this bad? We <laughs> Listen, when you take authority, the authority that he's given you over those areas of your life that have instead been ruling over you, when you take that authority back and focus on following Jesus Christ instead, you create space in your life for him to work because you're no longer being distracted or ruled by this world. And listen, the more authority you have, the more you can exercise it in your own life and in the lives of others. That's what happens when you're actually following Jesus. That's when you can pray with authority and people get healed. We've seen it, haven't we? Right here. That's when people are miraculously provided for. We've seen it here. That's when the calling of God is realized in our lives. That's when the greatest needs are met. That's when supernatural peace comes in the midst of turmoil. That's when your life begins to turn around, when you focus on Jesus Christ and take authority over the things that you previously worshipped in this world because that is when you make room for God to work in your life. So just remember... You cannot rule over something that you worship. So look, if this world has such a tight grip on you that you're being ruled by it, then it's time for you to take your God-given authority over the ways of this world back. That is, in fact, what you were made for. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't just call us to pray a prayer of faith. No, he called us to follow him. And there's always great purpose in following Jesus Christ, but that's going to mean shifting your focus away from this world and squarely onto him. Right? You can't follow something you're not focused on. It, it means drastically changing the way that you live your life. It means leaving things behind. It means denying yourself. It means laying your own life down for him and for other people. It means going wherever he leads you and doing whatever he wants you to do instead of whatever you want to do. In fact, following Jesus means being so close to him that his own image is reflected in you. And I'm telling you, that's the most powerful and purposeful life you could ever live because when you are that close to Jesus, this world no longer has a hold over you. Can you see it? Do you, do you see how you were made for so much more than simply living for yourself? Right? When, when the primary focus of your life is on yourself, you're actually settling for far less than what he created you for. 
You were made for so much more than just living for yourself or for this world, so much more than just trying to get by. You were made for so much more than just pleasing other people. You were made to be so much more than anything this world will ever promise you. Truth is, you are wonderfully and fearfully made. You were wonderfully and fearfully made to reflect the very image of the creator of the heavens and the earth and to exercise that authority over that creation as his royal priesthood. Now you tell me, what greater purpose could there be? Let's pray.